I'm Sarah Hagiti. And I'm Erin Babornik. Welcome to Coeb's Adult Ed Advocast. The Advocast is a partner podcast of Coeb's State Advocate for Adult Education Fellowship. Each episode highlights challenges and successes in advocacy. We also highlight a new student story. We're glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hello, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Trying to survive. It's a very cold, snowy day in Tucson, Arizona. Can you believe that it's snowing here? Uh, It seems odd to me, but I'm from northern Illinois, so snow is just kind of a, a normal thing. Although I think we got your Arizona winter because it's been like 50 degrees and we've had no snow did you send snow on our way because our city is not prepared for the snow and here we are we are not functioning well because we don't know what to do with the snow well you look like you're holding it together (laughs) we do our best so today what are we going to be talking about sarah Mm, a very important subject. This is one of my favorite subjects. We were waiting to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, um, for a while. And we have wonderful guests coming in, and we're going to um, talk about DEI in this episode. Fantastic. And you recommended a couple of people to bring on today. Um, can you talk about why you recommended them? Yeah, because it's very important when you're talking about DEI in the context of adult education and adult education programs, it's good to have a perspective from an administrator. Um, And it's also good to have perspective from instructor point of view. Um, Their their perspectives might vary based on um, the nature of the jobs that they have. An administrator needs to think about the bigger program needs to think about staff, needs to think about students, needs to think think about um, behind the scenes and what's happening, what things we should offer to our students, technology and all the other opportunities that our students can have access to or not, um, and a lot of different issues. Instructors usually work with students and among themselves, so um, they bring different perspectives and we are hoping to talk to a student uh, and we hear from her and her pers- her perspective and we are very excited about it. Absolutely. So our first guest that we're going to bring on is somebody who is pretty well known in COABE, um, who was part of the DEI symposium that occurred last year. Um, the phenomenal Dr. Carmen Stewart. Oh, thank you. That was a nice introduction. Yes. Well, you are phenomenal. Hi, you gotta, you gotta give a shout out where it's due. So, welcome to the Advocast. Thank you. Welcome, so, Carmen. Thank you, Sarah. So, we would love to turn it over to you and just have you introduce yourself to to our listeners. Uh, so, I'm Carmen Stewart, and I actually started in adult literacy as an instructor. Uh, before moving into a program coordinator role. And I am now the vice president of programming at a program in Cleveland called Seeds of Literacy. And I'm also the moderator for the Links discussion group around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you. I've worked so in this field for, oh, say I worked in the field for, it'll be 17 years in two weeks. 
<laughs> so I started when I was seven, obviously. Um, but it's I, I'm so happy. I actually was trained as a diversity trainer many, many years ago, over 20 years ago. And I'm just excited that our field is really beginning to have these conversations, particularly around equity and inclusion, because I think that it's really important. And I think that once we when we start incorporating DEI, it makes our programs better. It makes the classroom experience better and more relevant to students. And I think it's 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 past its time. So I'm very excited that you're doing this podcast on this topic and that COAVE is keeping it at the forefront and that the Department of Education is also prioritizing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. Yes, this is a very important subject that we need to always keep it forefront um, in everything that we do. Um, and we believe that your experience um, and knowledge will help us to learn more about it and what we can do. So um, if you could just talk a little bit about DEI and how it looks like um, in an adult ed classroom or in an adult ed program. So I think at the program level, I think we have to really think about from the moment someone hears about our program, whether they're going to join staff or become a student or volunteer, from the moment they see our program, they're getting messaging about whether they're welcome or not. And that's the inclusion part of DEI. Do they see themselves reflected in our materials? If you're a potential student, do you see someone who looks like you on the website? Do you see your language represented if you're not an, if you're an English language learner? Can you get information about the program in your language? Um, and I think the programs have to really think about DEI from that first touch, that first interaction, the first time that someone hears about your program, to how they're received by your receptionist on the phone or in person, to what kinds of what our process for orientation looks like. Is it inclusive? Do they see, do they hear student voices? Do they have student ambassadors who are a part of that process and curriculum and instruction? Do they see themselves reflected in the curricular materials? Does instruction include diverse perspectives? to how students are evaluated, to how they exit our program, what opportunities are there. And then I also think it's important for students to see themselves reflected in the volunteer base, in the staff, in the board, or even being a part of the staff or a part of the board. So I think that all of that, all of those are ways that diversity, equity, and inclusion can be included in the program all the way across the board. I love that. I love the the idea that, you know, if you don't know where to start, you start with the students and you listen to their voice and you listen to their perspective. And I imagine there are a lot of maybe programs who are listening and thinking, oh, we serve like 17 different language groups. That's a lot of different languages. And I think, again, it, it's it's really about just making sure that people realize that they are are welcome. Mm -hmm. um, and I will give a shout out to Illinois because our our state director has made sure that like the marketing materials that come from, from our state um, funding agency, mm -hmm. that they have been translated into every language of learner that we serve um, oh, right wow. down to like, right down to like Haitian Creole, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have That's making so sure amazing. that it's there to kind of take some of that that pressure off of the programs to do that. I agree. And I, go ahead, Carmen. I was going to say, I, I've worked with some educators in, in Massachusetts through Sabes who've had similar challenges. And I think sometimes, I mean, it's wonderful if you can get the resources to have that tra those translation services. But I think when, when you don't have that, what you can do is 
use your students, use your student ambassadors, use your program alumni to help ease that, to help maybe do some of that translation work for you so that you have that, that welcome for every student who comes into your program. Yeah, uh, that's what I was going to say also, Carmen. Um, in our program, we have 34 languages spoken. Um, we have students from all around the world. And sometimes our students even are not na literate in, in their native language. So it, it will be hard for them to read something that even if it is translated into their program in, into their language, what we do is to use um, a language interpretation tool, language line solution, to communicate with them to make sure that they understand every single form that they need to sign, every single messaging that is um, being uh, communicated with them is in their native language. And that also is part of their welcoming too. Like since day one, when they walk into our doors, we use the language line for our communication purposes. Sure. I've also worked with a program that decided to record their orientation in a couple of different languages. So that if someone, I mean, if someone's orientation is the most intimidating part of the program, because it's when you're really just trying to figure out how does this even work? So if you can have that in your, in your own language, even if you're in a room with other folks and you're listening with headphones, at least the, the introduction to the program, you get it, you know what to expect and you understand what they're trying to communicate to you. So I think it's, it's wonderful that your programs have those resources in place. Such a good idea. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Yes, because you may not be able to uh, sustain budgeting for language line on a long period of time, but if you record that orientation, at least that part might help. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you don't you don't lose students to the fear of what what is coming up next. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. You get them you get them into the classroom and and then the teacher can can take over and, and work their magic. Okay. So it's it's not news that in adult education that we serve a very diverse population of students. Mm -hmm. So in a world that has people of color and underserved populations suffering from not having that access to quality education, what are some of the strengths that you see that adult ed programs bring to the table? Well, I think probably one of the biggest strengths is our human resources. The fact that you have so many folks who just really are committed to this field and really committed to the students. Um, and so I think for sure the fact that so many of us are willing to look for those other options and opportunities like you just described your programs doing, I think those are definite strengths that that really help us to address the different the differences. But I think the other resource that we have is the students who are able to give us information about where their voices are missing, where they're absent, um, tapping into their their ideas about our program design, what works and what doesn't work. And I think another strength that we have is that even if it's not state required, we collect a lot of data and that data can give us a lot of information, especially if we disaggregate it to know if our outcomes are different for students based on different demographic groups. And I think when we have conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, the outcomes piece is the part that we really have to focus on with regard to equity, because it's wonderful if you can recruit a lot of folks into your program, but if you're not graduating people at the same rates, then you might need to look at your program a little bit differently and figure out what it is that you're doing that, that may be serving one group well, but maybe isn't serving another group quite as well. I think the other thing is that just this, the commitment of the national organizations that are really keeping the conversation at the forefront, I think that those are also 
um, just wonderful strengths to our field. The fact that we have so many people who are committed to keeping the conversation alive and not only keeping the conversation alive, but finding tools and resources to actually go from ideation to implementation and then evaluating how they're doing with DEI and then being able to go back and make changes for that. So I've seen a lot of commitment from different organizations and I, I think that is just wonderful. That is great. Yes, yes. As simple as you said, keep the conversation going until you find resources. Um, and yeah. one thing that I really like that you mentioned that it's not one size fits all. Um, you can't just say that this is the way that we serve our students and has worked for one population. Mm -hmm. And so we should be doing this way because it might not work for another population mm -hmm. and you have to always differentiate that within your program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I I love that you brought up disaggregated data because I, I am a data nerd. Thank so I, <laughs> I love that. Um, can you just define for our listeners who might not be aware, like what what is disaggregated data? Okay, so it, that is looking at your data by different de demographic groups. So you might look at your intake data. Let's say you have an ESOL program and your program is serving students from different countries. You can look to see, you know, so here's our program. Here are the students who came in at a level one or a level two, and here's where they moved. We can look at that and say, okay, yes, we're having su some success. But if we drill down and look at that, say by gender, and we find out that the students who are male are outperforming students who are female, then we can look back and say, okay, so how is it that we're serving female students differently than males? Or is there something culturally that's keeping the, the women from seeing the same level of success? Or is there something in our program that we need to do to provide more support? So disaggregating data is looking at data, not just globally, but in terms of looking at the different demographic groups differently. And I think it's important to also consider that when we're looking at you know, gender data that we're inclusive in that as well, because students who are LGBTQIA plus may have a completely different experience in your program. And so it makes sense to look at that as well. If we're not serving those students well, if we're not making them feel comfortable, if we're not making them feel safe in our programs, we're not going to retain them. They're not going to have the outcomes. And so it's important for us to look at that diversity inclusive of, of all of the all of the different ranges along the human continuum. I think it's important for us to look at that. So you can look at, you can disaggregate by language, you can disaggregate by race, you can disaggregate by country of origin, you can disagree, disaggregate by all kinds of factors. And it's just a way to really see is, and you can actually disagree, disaggregate by levels. So if your ABE students, ABE1 students are performing well and your ABE, ABE um, ASC students are not is there something that's happening in your program? And it's usually the reverse. Usually it's the, the lower students who don't see the gains. And is that a factor of our curriculum? Is it a factor of instruction? So like really looking at the data so that you can ask better questions and come up with better solutions for your program. Um, that's actually a very good um, point that you brought up because we usually tend to look at data one way and not in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. And in a world, at least in um, um, ESOL, feel you usually look at people um, either by their um, race um, and you don't consider their country of their ori origin and a lot of people fall under other right um, and that might not tell something to us especially to those for those students who come from countries or they that they didn't have access to education especially mm -hmm. females yes um, as an example if we are looking at the at a country like Afghanistan, 
-hmm. When we are talking about people from Afghanistan, they, we might say that, oh, they are highly educated. They work with American troops for so long, so they, their English is good, um, and they, they are highly educated. But are we looking at their females, that they never had the opportunity to uh, receive education because mm -hmm. of the rules that Taliban was putting in place at, uh, during the time that they were in power? Um, or if we look the other way around, then we might get a different result. So I really like the idea that you're bringing up, that we should look at data in different lenses um, to just get a bigger picture of what's happening in our programs. And um, just um, in that aspect, so we're going to have a lot of needs. Um, what are the needs to consider um, to take us to a better direction? The needs for programs in general? Yeah, we can start from the needs from programs. So, well, first I would say, I think that every conversation for adult education programs should start with a, a conversation with the students. Uh, what are the needs as they see them? Because I think sometimes as professionals, we feel like, and I'm not sure if this is educational bias or socioeconomic bias, but I think a lot of times we feel like we know what's best for them. And so I feel like every conversation should actually start with the students and let them generate what needs are for our program, what needs they feel exist in the community. Uh, we just had a conversation with students. And one of the things that they told us is that their, their access to medical information and their ability to get information from practitioners when they're in a doctor's office is really limited. And so we, we've been creating new efforts around that, giving them equitable, more equitable access to health information, more equitable access to quality healthcare. So I think a lot of the needs should generate from where our students are from their experiences. I think another need that's important at the program level is that we often talk about diversity in terms of our workforce, our tutor force, our, our board, board of directors. But I think one thing that we have to really think about is needing to determine what that looks like. What does it look like to have more diversity on our board? Setting a number, setting a goal, and then being willing to look at what strategies you're using to recruit people, what criteria you're depending on, if we're looking for someone to be in reception, do they really need to have a bachelor's degree to answer the phones, to enter attendance data, or can we elevate one of our alum to be on the program staff? So I think that there are some of the needs that we have are just in examining ourselves and examining our own biases and examining our processes to see what we can do differently to make sure that diversity, equity, and inclusion are part of our actual practices. And then I think we also have to examine the, the existence of affinity bias, that it is difficult to diversify your staff if affinity bias, which is feeling more comfortable around people who are more like you. I mean, when we talk about the presidency, everyone says, oh, you know, I, he, I, could, I could have a beer with him, right? Oh, he's, he's very relatable. And we do the same thing when we're hiring new staff. So often we may not look at a candidate who doesn't look like us as though they might have the same capability as someone who does look at us because of that affinity bias. And so I think sometimes we have to really focus on maybe having a search committee that includes students, that includes people from the community who reflect the population of the students that you serve, having students on your board of directors, having students as a part of you know, a student ambassadorship or student council decision-making body, decision-influencing body as a part of your program. So I think that those are a couple of needs, I think, just right off the bat that we would we need to address in adult literacy education. And then the other thing I think is programs have to engage in professional development around DEI. And I think a lot of times people are reluctant to do that. 
over the 20 years that I've done diversity training, I've seen trainers who've been very kind of in your face in their approach. And I think that that turns people off. I think that you have to start from a place of helping people understand that identity is something that we don't get to control. Our biases are things that are kind of imposed on us from the time that we're little, from our families, from our cultures, from our communities of origin, from our faith communities to the media, that all of those things influence our biases. And it's not that we're just horrible people who think things about people. And so I think you have to start from a place where people aren't feeling guilt, shame, and blame so that they're open to receive, you know, they're open to reflect on, okay, so how can I think about this differently? Or to say, hey, you know, someone said that they were offended by my comment. Would I have made that comment to someone of my same gender, of my same race, of my same cultural background? And if I if I wouldn't have, what narrative exists in my head that made me make that different statement toward this person? And now that I've realized that, how do I act on that? What do I do? Do I do I re-narrate that story in my head? Do I go to this person and apologize? Do I read a book to make myself more knowledgeable? Do I search for TED Talk topics that are quote, that are on that topic. Like, how do I change? How do I do the self-work? And so I think that people are not going to do that self-work if we don't provide sustained professional development around DEI. And so I think that, you know, I'm seeing that in our field. And I, and I think that that's wonderful, but I definitely think it's something that we need to continue to do. Wow. <laughs> that, those, that was a lot. To, I'm going to be thinking about that all day. That's a lot of fantastic information. And Carmen, I know people are going to, people will want to continue this conversation and they're going to want to seek out resources. So where can they find you or where can they go to continue conversations about DEI specific to adult education? I'm so glad you asked that question. So the U.S. Department of Education maintains a website called Links. And it is a resource. It's a literacy information and communication system that allows us to connect with other adult educators. And they started a diversity, equity, and inclusion discussion group in November. And it is live now. So people can go to the LINCS website. Um, and that's L-I-N-C-S, links.ed.gov. And they can join the DEI community. We are having conversations. We have some live events that come up once a month. And it's a way for people to continue to connect and engage. And I'm so excited to be the moderator of that group and it's growing. We've grown members and I'm, I'm just hoping to get more people to interact because I do think people have questions. I do think they want to know, you know, sometimes you don't, you're not necessarily working in an environment where you feel safe sharing something. So you might want to ask a question in a safer space. And that's what we're trying to create in that, in that forum. And there are other discussion forums and community groups that are also wonderful on that website. I encourage people to check out. But the DEI group, we're having these conversations and trying to get programs to move. And sometimes you may be the only person in your program who really has DEI as your priority. So it's nice to have other folks who have that and can provide support as you work to recruit more folks within your organization to join that conversation and to join that effort. Um, I'm also on, uh, well, I don't know. I don't use Twitter quite so much anymore. But I am on LinkedIn under Dr. Carmen Stewart, and they can always reach out to me too at drstewart at seedsofliteracy.org. And that's seeds, S-E-E-D-S, like you plant in the ground, O-F-L-I-T-E-R-A-C-Y.org. Great. And to all our listeners, we'll we'll put links to all of this, links to links in the (laughs) show notes as well so that you can go straight to the community section and get signed up to be part of that, that group. 
great. Thank you so much. Thank you for accepting our invitation and talking to us about this issue. Yes, this is this was really informative and really powerful. And I am certainly going to be seeking you out at, at CoAbe to listen to your sessions because I oh, want to hear more, more about what you're doing. So oh, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, please come see me at CoAbe. I'm doing two free conferences. Yes. We will show up in your live session sometime. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will talk to Sarah. Sydney. Sydney is one of our wonderful instructors that you're going to get to know her shortly. Sydney Sanders. We are excited to have her in our AdvoCast. Hi, Sydney. How are you? Hello, hello. I'm good. How are y'all? Good. 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 This is very exciting to have you here, Sydney. Um, I know where you're at, but tell our listener where you're at exactly. Yeah, of course. Um, so I am currently in Cape Town, South Africa. I am doing a Fulbright English teaching assistantship for this year. Um, so that is super exciting to be here. So I've been here about a month and so still kind of getting settled and figuring out what exactly my project is and everything. But oh that's my God. From. That's so exciting. Thank you so much for coming to Advocast, especially at this time at night. Um, thank you for accepting our, our invitation. Oh, thanks for um, inviting me. This is exciting. Thank you. So I know you from um, one of the Lesla coffee breaks that we had that you talked about DEI. And then I had the pleasure of meeting you in person here in Tucson, um, Arizona, during the Lesla Symposium. Um, I just wanted you to introduce yourself, to tell our listeners about yourself and um, your connection with adult education. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I am originally from Texas, uh, or at least that's where I spent most of my childhood growing up. And then um, my journey to English teaching is kind of all over the place. But uh, in undergrad, I studied anthropology and sociology because I have a like deep love and appreciation for learning about different cultures. And then after undergrad, had no idea what I was going to do with that degree and um, kind of resisted English teaching. Um, for those who know me, this is not a surprise, but um, I kind of always, people kept suggesting English teaching and I was pretty hesitant about it because to me, and we can talk more about this later, but English teaching was perpetuating colonialism, right? And I felt a little weird about that. And then obviously I became an English teacher, so um, we could talk more about that journey. But once I moved to Minnesota, I was uh, serving as an AmeriCorps VISTA, um, just happened to be at an adult English school. And I was absolutely blown away by the community that we had there and the um, really the love for each other that we had in our level one class and the amount of humor that comes across at that level, right? Always laughing, always having a good time. Um, and so that kind of started my adult English journey and decided to go ahead and get my TEFL certificate first, went on to get my master's, um, both the certificate and the master's at Hamlin University in Minnesota, uh, where I then studied 
what I would call anti-racist approaches to teaching English, otherwise though known as DEI in um, adult English. Yeah. Uh, what does DEI look like in the classroom? There, it's such a broad question because there's so much, and I feel like the question I get most from other teachers, educators is, you know, looking for a simple answer. And there's so many different routes you can go with, with DEI in the classroom. Um, and kind of, it, I, I always tell teachers who do my professional developments, you know, trainings that I do is that you kind of got to hear about a few different ones and then figure out which one you want to commit to trying first. But so for an example, um, I feel like one of the easiest examples is to start with diverse images and diverse stories, making them relevant to the student population that you're working with. Um, that's one that doesn't require a whole lot of, for me, as much effort. And yes, it is a little bit of effort because you've got to first learn, okay, where could I get those pictures and stuff, but it doesn't require quite as much um personal reflection and thinking about your own culture, which is a huge thing. Like you really do there. Um, I believe anti-racist teaching or DEI teaching involves, involves a lot of praxis, um, which sounds like a jargony word, but I just really did like that word in my master's research. But the important part about praxis is combining reflection and action. And I see a lot of educators get stuck in that reflection stage. They're either not going deep enough right? Um, or they stay in that stage because they're afraid of making mistakes. And so I always tell teachers, one of the biggest things is to just try something. So pick something small. And I think that one of the easiest ones or most simple ones is starting with those diverse images or diverse stories. So for an example, um, if you've got a really diverse class, this can be more challenging, but just an example I like to give is with my, um, in Minnesota, I had a class of pretty much all but one Somali women. And in Minnesota, since we have such a beautiful, large Somali community, there are adult English books, or one series at least about a Somali woman and her dad. And so using that as a relevant story for um, teachers. But then for another class that we had that was a lot more diverse, are the University of Minnesota has these, um, I don't remember the exact name right now, but they're called immigrant stories. And the U of M has collected stories from immigrants in Minnesota. And myself and another of the teachers would go and find those stories and then use those as, you know, build lessons around those to make it relevant. So it's talking about the joys of being an immigrant and their cultures back home but also some of the struggles that they have and, you know, opening up the classroom to being able to talk about sometimes, you know, we don't want to make the classroom a depressing place, but we also don't want to avoid the real stress and trauma that our students are bringing to the classroom, because if we don't acknowledge those, then they can't learn. Um, you know, a lot of, I think DEI teaching is also trauma informed teaching. And so um, thinking about how to do activities, I think another easy one to do um, and a great mentor of mine does this, but she's got about a rotation of four or five grounding activities. So um, just when you first come into the classroom, doing some breathing or mindfulness activities, and since she rotates in them and now the students know them, um, she lets each student a day pick one of those activities. So you're giving agency to the students. So they're choosing which ones they like doing, right? 
you're grounding your, the students in the classroom, reminding them that this is a safe space to learn because they're clearly there to learn because that is a goal that they have for whether it's, you know, to talk to their neighbor, to help their kids with their homework or to, um, you know, speak English at work. Your brain can't learn. Trauma-informed practices tells us that your brain can't learn if you don't feel like you're in a safe space, right? And so those are kind of some beginning um, ones that we like to do or talk about. And then there's a lot more examples, but I'll stop there for now. <laughs> that is, that's incredible. And I've, I've been taking notes, even though I know this is recorded and I can listen back to it because these are um, just exciting to hear these, these different things that, that people are doing. And I think one thing that really stood out to me was this undercurrent of like, know the people in your classroom, right? Know them, um, you know, and it, that helps in choosing materials too. Like I, I was looking for um, different stories and I, I often go to the change agent because yeah. those stories yeah. Yeah, are written by, by students. And there was one that really fit um, like the grammar we were focusing on. And I thought that our students would really engage with however it dealt with a country dealing with war. And I had a student who had lived through that war in the country. And I said, that can't, that can't happen, right? Because this no longer is going to be a safe place for him if he's coming in and I'm exposing him to bringing up some trauma here. Um, so, and I love the idea of the grounding activities. Yeah, such good examples. Thank you so much. And um, during your conversation, you mentioned about series of trainings that you're having about anti-racist teaching. Could you talk about them a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, part of my master's research or really my master's project was creating a study circle that I call the anti-racist praxis study circle um, through. So if anyone has heard of Hamlin University of Minnesota in St. Paul, hey, hello. Um they have a department called Atlas that I partnered with, and they do a lot of um, teacher professional development in Minnesota. And I partnered with them to develop the study circle because they do lots of study circles about um, pronunciation and like reading comprehension stuff, right? Like there's a wide range and, but they didn't have any anti-racist or DEI specific ones. Um, and so I partnered with them and it is a five meeting, 10 hour total um, study circle. And the idea of study circles is that they're supposed to stay kind of relatively small. So eight to 12 people is the kind of average. Um, and it's about practitioners getting together to learn about new ideas, right? New concepts to really talk about them, to discuss them. And then to, in a very collaborative way, figure out, brainstorm, how am I going to try this in my classroom, right? And to me, that is essential for anti-racist or DEI teaching is it is about collaboration. Um, if you're doing this on your own, I think that's where that fear starts to come in again of saying, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, right? Um, so when you're doing it in collaboration with other educators, you realize a lot of people have the same fears as I do, and we can brainstorm um, about how to try it. And then when you meet the next month, because we're either, I like to try to do them once a month, maybe to give people really time to digest and try things. And then we're kind of unpacking 
what'd you do this month? How did it go? You know, what could I do differently next time? Because it really is. It's about that reflection time. It's about action and actually trying it. And then, um, okay, moving on to the next topic. But I really like to stress that five meetings is not enough to end racism in our classrooms, right? But it's a start and it gives people a place to start. And so I've been doing that study circle um, now a few times for different states in the U.S. and um, then done other trainings based on that same information. But like, say someone has hired me to do um, maybe two meetings. And so I've picked, you know, okay, what are two meetings worth of my, um, I think the essential things to talk about with some teachers. And so, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Oh, that's amazing. I like that you mentioned that we cannot solve racism in a meeting or so. Um, but it's good to know that we can just start from somewhere and not be afraid of making mistakes. Yes. Yeah. That's what stuck out to me too, Sarah, is going back to, to Sydney, what you had mentioned earlier about people who get stuck in the reflection portion because they're, they're afraid of the action. And Mm -hmm. what if I do something wrong or what if, or like, how do I, how do I approach these conversations um, as somebody who, you know, has not experienced what my students have experienced. Um, Yeah. And in one of the conversations that I had with you, Sydney, here in Tucson, you were mentioning that um, it's okay to make mistakes. You are going to make mistakes. And that is part of learning. That's part of learning process. And that is very important. Absolutely. One of my, I say this in every single meeting I do, but um, my Angelou's quote, um, oh gosh, and now because I'm on the spot, I'm not going to say the whole quote or whatever, but um, it is do the best you can until you know better than when you know better, do better. And it is, I want a tattoo of it. I write it down. I look at it regularly as a reminder of mistakes are part of the process. They really, really are. And if we tell our students it's okay to make mistakes in the classroom, why don't we give ourselves that same grace, right? And so um, I really do try to remind myself of that often, you know. Beautiful. Thank you. It's it's hard. It, it feels good to hear that somebody who has been doing this work also still has to remind themselves of it. You know, I, I think there's sometimes that sometimes that kind of imposter syndrome of everybody else is doing this and I'm not and I'm failing and everybody else seems to be having an easy go of it. So kind of, I, you know, it, I think it, that really speaks to, to teachers saying, no, this is, this is hard work and it's always, it's always work. Absolutely. So Sydney, I want to bring another question to you here, which is how does adult ed help our minoritized learners and populations access quality education? Yeah. um, What I think is great about adult ed is that it's there's lots of options for, you know, the kinds of classes that we bring. So obviously English is a huge part of it, but also knowing that that goes to pre-GED classes, right? And GED classes, um, giving learners options, lots of options to meet their goals. Again, I mentioned some different goals earlier, but some students really just want to be able to talk to their neighbors 
in English, right? Um, some students want to just be able to help their kids with their homework. Some learners want to um, go on, get their GED because they're maybe they're one, they've never, they didn't get a high school diploma or any equivalent in their home countries, um, or maybe their degree isn't um, recognized in the United States, right? And so it gives learners a lot of options for figuring out, you know, what are their goals, um, you know, in the U.S. and how can they reach those goals? And I think that's the really important part is um, I believe adult ed really gives learners agency over their goals, right? Over their paths and figuring out, you know, how can they um, contribute, you know, to their new communities that they're living in, which is so important. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I, um, I also want to kind of rewind a second to what you mentioned about some learners just want to be able to talk to their neighbor. And I know I've heard from programs around me where it's like, under our grant funding, we really need to get people into jobs. And to bring this back to to advocacy, you know, part of what we do is help to raise our voices to say, it, you know, this is not necessarily what everybody wants. Maybe we need to find a way to measure and to kind of reward programs for helping learners achieve those individual goals, like engaging within the community, because that's powerful. Right? You don't need to be in a nine to five job to make a big impact, right? People do that in, in very different, very different ways. Yeah, I agree, actually. I believe that part of the job that we do is to empower our students to find their voices and find what they want to do in their life. We are just providing tools to them and then they figure it out from there. And then we are there to support them in any way possible. If the goal for them is to just be able to communicate with their children's school teachers, then that's fine. If their goal is to continue their higher education, then that's also a way, a pathway that we can provide to them. If they want to get a better job, then we can provide support for that as well. So Sydney, what do teachers and programs need to ensure that they can provide and um, what type of accessibility and equitable experiences they can provide to adult ed community or students? Yeah, I think, you know, number one, we have to start with what our students needs, right? And what will help them in their journey, you know, with their goals. And so a lot of students want to come to class um, because they have English goals for whatever reason, right? We've already talked about some examples of those goals. Um, but do they have access to childcare, right? That was a big issue I saw in Minnesota, Um is not always having access to childcare, which means that they can't come to class or they can't come, you know, consistently. Transportation, what is that like, you know? And so kind of starting with that of what will help students be able to come to school and be able to participate in school. And then once you're actually in class, right, um, continuing to think about, okay, what now do students need in the classroom? And unfortunately, a lot of adult ed does not have the funding, the resources, right, to really 
do to really look at education for adult students in this kind of holistic way, right? And so um, just thinking about also the resources, I think one of the biggest problems actually, so in Minnesota, I worked at a volunteer-led program um, that most of the teachers were volunteers, right? That means that as, as grateful as we are that volunteers are willing to, you know, participate and support classes, they're not trained in teaching, right? Which means that adult students often aren't getting as quality education as I believe they deserve, right? And so if they don't have a trained teacher who one is trained in English teaching in general, but then also where I come in is then that means that these volunteer teachers especially aren't trained in DEI, right? Um, Which I believe can be extra harmful, right? Teachers, whether they're paid or volunteers, have really good intentions, but our good intentions do don't keep us from accidentally, you know, perpetuating racist hierarchies within the classroom, right? Or um, assumptions that cause us to, you know, use pictures that only look like the communities that we're from, right? And stories that are from the communities or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, So I think being under-resourced and underpaid and even for paid teachers, um, in my experience as a paid teacher, we also didn't get the pay for DEI training or um, really a lot of professional development that would help with reading comprehension skills and pronunciation skills, right? And so um, it's it all, it's all about funding and it's all about, you know, that holistic approach of which unfortunately makes it sound really complicated and it kind of is, but um, these are these questions that we need to be asking to make sure that our classrooms are equitable. Those are very good points. Thank you so much for bringing those up. And just um, to clarify, you mentioned this about Minnesota based on your experience, but a lot of other states are dealing with the same issues as well. And this is a universal problem. Teachers are always underpaid um, and overworked. Sometimes we don't have enough resources for them. Um, to train properly and provide quality education to teachers. And I'm assuming when you want to do your research to have an anti-racist lesson in your class, looking for those pictures, looking for those lessons or stories, take time. And it's important for teachers to get Mm -hmm. prep time. And a lot of programs just simply cannot afford that time to pay to teachers. I think the other thing right. that is that is interesting about the field of adult education is that there's not there's not a major at at most universities about teaching adults, right? People who go into work in higher ed are usually highly specialized in one area, like they get an English degree, then they go teach English at a college. Um, those who work in K through twelve, right? have that that education pathway. And so we have so many teachers who take, like myself, who take kind of a sidestep into adult education. And yeah, the the, the funding is essential to to keep the teachers who are passionate so they don't have to kind of leave against their will to get a job that offers benefits or pays a family sustaining wage. Um, but also being able for them to get that professional development to 
um, I don't want to use the word develop again, but to you know, work and evolve as, as an instructor, especially if like me, they don't have a bachelor's degree in education. So it's going back and trying to, to get those fundamentals as you are in the, in the field. That is right. That is right. Very good points. Very good points. Professional development is huge in our community because a lot of even uh, experienced um, educators might not be specialized in teaching in adult ed community. And within the adult education community, there are different levels and tiers. Teaching ABE side is very different from teaching ESOL side, even within ESOL side. It's very different if you're teaching an IET or you're teaching advanced classes or literacy classes. We have very specialized fields and we need experienced teachers to um, teach those classes. And sometimes we're only going to rely on professional development and that requires a lot of funding. <laughs> exactly. And and even you know, ESL across the United States, like uh, Sydney, you were mentioning that there's a really rich Somali um, community in Minnesota, you know, and so there are different different areas of the United States that have have kind of specific language communities. So we get a lot of Polish speakers in our classrooms because Chicago is a popular location for Polish immigrants to move, um, and so that that also means maybe learning about a different culture, learning about how that language is structured. And so it's, you know, professional development might look different in different parts of, of the United States to fit the needs if we're really trying to teach holistically. I would add too that um, a lot of what my professional development focuses on is just thinking about what culture is. So Erin, it really goes with what you're saying of like, Yes, these communities are different, but there are these essential questions that we need to unpack our own culture, which means unpacking the assumptions that we bring into our classroom. And then also there's tools like I love um, if anyone has ever heard of the culture tree, it's similar to the culture iceberg, which more people have heard of. Right. Um, but it really helps us kind of analyze our classrooms, the texts we use. to, So we're not just making all these assumptions about our own culture and putting them on to our students, right? And so really deeply trying to understand our students' cultures and like you said, their languages too, that can mean so much to people is when you just try to, I only speak English, okay? And I know Somali teacher words, I know a little bit of Spanish, right? But um, there's there's a my one of my other favorite quotes besides that Maya Angelou one I said earlier, um, is a quote by Trevor Noah and he, well, he's paraphrasing a famous quote by Nelson Mandela that, um, I really like, but he says something essentially like when you make the effort to speak someone else's language, you know, even if it's just basic phrases here and there, you're saying to them that I have a culture and identity that exists beyond me or that you do. Right. Um, so I see you as a human being and that's, that's essential to what I try to do is to, you know, learn bits of my students' languages, learn about their cultures and bring that into the classroom. So the classroom really centers on them. Right. That is that, true. 
Sydney, I could listen to you all day, although I think it's late at night where you are. So you mentioned that you you do trainings. I'm not sure if you're currently doing doing it because of your your Fulbright um, opportunity that you're you have right now. But if people are are interested in finding you and finding more information about these trainings, how can they do that? Yeah. So I wish I had a better answer for this right now, except for I just moved to a new country and I'm doing a whole new thing. And so I'm trying to kind of take a break. Um, I can certainly share, um, y'all mentioned, you know, sharing like emails or something maybe at the end. And so, um, I can certainly share my emails, um, my email to talk about questions. I don't know how many yeses I will give about doing trainings at this exact moment, but something that's important that everyone should know, and I'll share this link with y'all, you know, so you can share it out. But my whole master's project is on, if y'all remember, I mentioned I worked with Atlas at Hamlin University for the study circle, and it is on their website, because it's not just about me doing these trainings. Like I made a whole facilitator's guide so that someone else can take this and go do it themselves. Like I I don't need to be part of everything. Right. And so I've put so many details. I probably did it too detailed. So I hope it's as user-friendly as possible um, so that people can also just go and, you know, get one other teacher at your school, or, you know, if you can recruit the whole crew, that's great too. But um, that's also something important as right now, as I'm trying to focus on some downtime to really live in the moment here in South Africa, um, that's another option too. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. I, I respect you protecting your space. <laughs> and I'm trying. I'm working yeah, on it. <laughs> it's it's tough to un <laughs> to undo that that constant that constant busyness. Um, so we'll definitely share that, that information about Atlas at Hamlin University so that people can look at those those notes and those facilitator notes and um, really reflect on everything that you've offered to our field. And thank you for adding Trevor Noah. It was pro pro appropriately fit while you're in South Africa. So good. I, know. I, I was like, I shouldn't mention him, but I guess I did. So it's fine. <laughs> it was good. It was good. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for the good conversation. And we wish you luck. And I hope you enjoy your time in South Africa. Oh, thank you. And again, I, I really appreciate y'all bringing this conversation to, you know, a broader community because it's it's so essential for us as educators to be talking about this in adult ed. So thanks for what y'all do. Thank you. Thank you. So we are going to take another short break. Welcome back to the Adult Ed Advocast. Sarah and I are so excited to introduce our last guest today. We are going to be joined by Mardrina Leance from City College of Technology in New York City. She is an adult learner. She is incredible. So Sarah, you and I have both met her, right? Yes, we both have the pleasure of meeting her at the Quape conference this year, and it's very excited. She presented with her other fellow um, classmates, and we were so inspired that we decided to bring her in our podcast and learn more about her. 
We are big fans and we know you will be too. So welcome to the podcast, Madrina. Hi. Hello. Thank Hi. You so Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you so much. Madrina, so we're huge fan of yours and we had the pleasure of meeting you and talking to you um, at the Quaib conference in Atlanta. But for our listeners and viewers, could you please tell us about yourself, who you are, and what brought you to adult education world? I'm originally from the Caribbean, and specifically, which you only to visit. And I recently, not recently, like five years ago, I came up to New York. So then I'm the type of person to like be ongoing, like determined to clear myself career-wise because I want to become a nurse in the future. Okay. And... <laughs> Me getting into um, being an adult learner, getting towards my future and stuff is one of my goals, what I want to be. But then when I first got here, COVID delayed everything. I couldn't get into jobs because like jobs were like having issues with the pandemic and everything like that was sky high. The school was set back until a later date. But then eventually... Everything started falling in place. I got into school. I'm currently getting my GEDs to get into college because I'm to become a nurse. And that I have, I'm halfway through that. I've passed the science and the math. And I don't know what's up with the social studies, but it's doing something to me. But I'm gonna get it eventually. <laughs> And yeah, you're done with the hard parts. So social yes. studies is challenging, but I'm sure you can do that. I know. It's not that challenging. It's just based on they have those questions that have similar answers that look like is the answer, but it's not the answer. Mm -hmm. Those things be tricking me sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're tricky. Yeah. <laughs> right. And after I got into adult education, I got my teachers. My teachers and my teachers made me comfortable in I guess some some of them, well not some of them, I don't have much, but all of them made me comfortable, especially the one who made me meet you, Sarah and Erin at Atlanta, who is one of my motivations into like at least getting there because he's a he has a different way of teaching from the DAD teachers. Like he gives you an open mind as to how to view any topic in question, whichever way you choose. Like, it's just a place where you could just be open-minded as to see questions as they are, because there are many ways to one answer, long, short, whichever way you choose to get yeah. it, but there are many ways to get your answer. So and, I, uh, I hear you talking okay. about this teacher as a mentor, but do you want to, Give him a shout out by name no so all He's the listeners name. know. <laughs> well, his name is Eric Appleton, our dad on this trip. He was a daddy, yeah, he took care of us, he was amazing. And you are um, talking about the trip uh, in Atlanta, 
tell us about it. How did you end up going to Atlanta to Coeb Conference? And you presented there and we were there. Could you tell us what you presented on? Yes, I was about to get to that because being in Eric's Appleton class made give me the opportunity to reach to Atlanta because he chose a few of a few students from that large group. I think there was like a hundred or something students that he needed help with. So he chose some students who were dedicated to his class, like always participating and stuff to be class leaders. Not like he needed teachers, but he needed students to, to help with like breakout groups and stuff like that. So then he reached out to a few of us and when he reached out to me, I didn't know what to think of it. I didn't study the first time. I was like, why would you want me to be a class when I think I need help myself? So then I left it alone. But then he hit me up again for a text message. I was like, no, I need to at least take it into consideration. So I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. I'm going to accept. But then after I accepted, it was like easier than I thought because I didn't have to be an actual teacher. I just had to like help certain students maybe if they were just a little off, but they self knew certain parts of the math. It's not like they didn't know. And then that led us to creating our own meeting with the code. We had our own presentation about us being the class leaders in his group and our experience and how we felt and the benefits of it. And then it was, we benefited confidence and learning how to interact with people better for them to understand and stuff like that. At our conference, it was, I was extremely nervous. I didn't know what to expect because that was our first time actually presenting us like a big deal. And we've Sarah and Eric making us feel like celebrities. And it's like even more like we should do something. We should be like, okay, it should be the best. Because everybody have high expectations for us. But then it turned out to be good. It went smooth and well. And I was surprised for the turnout. It was well like we expressed our views and the questions. And everybody was just so engaging at that Atlanta conference and we were so we were treated like royalty actually we felt like you know Mr. and Mrs. Bill Gates <laughs> or the queen in or the queen in England the late queen sorry <laughs> well you but, were celebrities your your session was so incredible like it it was fun to be in the audience and to actually engage and you kind of showed how you managed groups um and then like there was laughing i cried like Sarah, i think you cried too every single person was in tears i can guarantee you you were the superstar of uh the whole conference um I think this is one of the first times that we have a group of students come and present um, like this. And we were so excited because all we do, all of us, whatever we do is for the students. And it's amazing to see how strong and independent students become um, that become such great presenters. Now that you're back from Atlanta, you're back in New York. 
you are in classes, you're studying to pass that social studies test that you are going to pass. Um, thinking back on, on that conference in Atlanta, has that had any impact? Like what impact has that had on your return to classes? Being in Atlanta made me feel way more confident in me furthering myself, even if I wasn't, if I wasn't confident in getting my school and everything down in my classes and trying to be focused, this conference session made me feel more comfortable that anything you put your mind towards to, you're going to get it. You just have to be determined. You're supposed to have hopefully some few motivations which aren't yourself that's going to help you in the future. And there are many people you might not even know that just going to root for you regardless of the, the situation. That's amazing. That's amazing. Very glad to hear that. Um, Madrina, what advice would you have for students like you who are studying to get their GEDs and they want to go to college or they want to um, advance in their career? What advice would you have for them? Okay, so what I have to students like myself, determined, still motivated, they, they have to be motivated by themselves first before they could embrace their future goals because you need to have a destination. You need to have some place where you need to go to. You have to push yourself forward in order to embrace people pushing you forward because there are many people who don't know you, but they still want to see you shine regardless because everybody has different roads in life that they struggle with and like any little motivation helps you. Keep it a little thing somebody says, you're going to push you forward to like just say, oh yes, I still got this, but you just need to be determined and have motivations or them yourself. But you need to be the biggest motivation in your life. If you don't have that mindset of you going forward and like saying, oh yes, I need to do this for myself. I need to do this. I need to go there. You won't go further and you wouldn't accept help. You need to accept help. Even if like you feel like maybe you don't need it, but you need to accept it. Oh, uh, I, yes, I love that, Marjorina. I love the stay motivated, be your own biggest fan. There are people who want to see you shine and accept help. Those are those are fantastic. And thank you so, so much for joining us on here because we love seeing you shine and we are some of your biggest fans. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And this fine day, I know you live in New York City and the weather is not great there. I hope you stay safe and have a fantastic time. Thank you so much, Madrina. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are one of those who I knew nothing of and then you'll still see me as somebody I am not. And like you're so me as a legal person. So I appreciate you guys for having me here. And taking on my stress of my Wi-Fi and everything. <laughs> so I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was so great having her on. And just a little context about Madrina's motivation is we had Wi-Fi difficulties and she never once gave up. <laughs> never. That's how motivated and consistent she is. 
And we're so appreciative because we know that our listeners want to hear from her. And if you have not yet um, gone back and watched the recording of the presentation that she did at CoAbe, it was a hybrid presentation. So the recording is available and will be available for a year. So make sure you go and watch it. You can search by her name. You can search by Eric Appleton. They did a phenomenal presentation and it really was the highlight of the conference for me. It was, it really was. So thank you so much everyone for joining us for this really important episode about DEI in adult education. And Sarah, would you like to, to end us with some final words? Thank you so much for staying tuned with us. And we are very excited that we were able to bring our guests from all around the world um, to this podcast. Thanks to every single um, guest that came um, and shared their wisdom with us. Sydney, Carmen, and Madrina, we are very grateful. Thank you all, and we'll see you next month for the next AdvoCast.